Shut up and sit down. Attractive to me, and so I, 
I realized um, during that nano last year that I had definitely picked the wrong spot, the wrong place um, to start. And that happens. And that happens more when you have a big giant plot than it does in any other situation. Because I almost feel like instead of starting in the middle, I started at the end. And Like I started in the final arc of, of the story, and because there, I think there are two arcs before it that I didn't let myself think about. Um, that I that I just I really did not let myself think about, and um, at the time, and then I was forced to recognize that I did it. And then I was like, oh, God, I, I should not have started it there. That was such a mistake. Um, this is what I need to do instead. And so going back to that and um, exploring that uh, is – is it can often be a painful um, realization for you as a writer to realize that uh, – because I really did my idea a disservice by starting it where I started it. I didn't explore the the loss of physical humanity and the spiritual humanity they gained in um in their in their in their ambition to survive what was happening to them how they embraced that human moment I don't do flashbacks um and, but I kept trying to insert their past emotional history into my moments, and it was really difficult. And I just—I I realized I had—I um, just—I had done the wrong thing. Um, and um, my idea was bigger than my execution. And um, I think that. Um, acknowledging that while painful and a little frustrating um, really saved me in the long run because I stopped and um, I've been taking it apart and uh, and just really exploring um, the um, the emotional ramifications of, of, of giving up an organic body and um, so when it does finally happen and it will I think that it will be a much better project for my having had some self-control and for recognizing the problems that I was actually creating for myself in starting where I started. Which is perfectly okay to start in the middle, but it's really not cool to start at the end um, and not even know it. And I didn't know it. Um, I started in the middle of the end. I started in the middle of the third act <coughs> of what is actually, um, or the, the third arc, and it just <coughs> it was it, it was an immense mistake. And um, but recognizing those mistakes in yourself as a writer is really important to your growth as a writer. And I actually got an email from somebody who said that I spend um, that I put too much effort into my fan fiction. Um, but really what I would say about that is that um, I put effort into my craft. 
And it doesn't matter if it's original fiction or fan fiction. This is my craft. This is what I'm putting out there for the world to see. This is what I'm putting out there for the world to read. And that's the important part to me. Um, And it doesn't really matter um, whether I'm going to make money off of it or not because I don't write to make money. Um, Even my original work, which I'm really proud of, uh, is is no longer something that I look at as a product because that mindset really almost destroyed me as a writer. Um, and there are plenty of writers who can do that, and I commend you if you can view if, if you can do that. And you have to do that if you want to write professionally. You have to emotionally detach from your work at a certain point, and it stops being your word baby, and it becomes somebody else's product. And I got to the point in my life where that was no longer important to me. It, it could no longer be important to me because it was really, um, it was really corrupting me creatively. I mean, I, it was just, it was um, difficult. And um, it was difficult for me to, to acknowledge that. And it was painful. Um, but um, moving past that really helped me as far as um, being creative again because before I entered fandom and kind of relaxed a little, um, I hadn't written, I had not written in three years. I had written nothing in three years until I kind of um, tripped over into fandom again. Um, I used to write fan, you know, fan fiction for myself when I was much younger, but uh entering the fandom community kind of woke up the writer in me that was that was sleeping um hibernating i don't know i I just i'd gotten so um bound up in expectations that writing became such an immense chore that i hated it and i'm really really thankful to to have gotten past that and I'm never going to risk going there again so um, original work happens when it happens and it's more about my creativity um, than any kind of professional gain and uh, I'm not interested in being a New York bestseller I'm not interested in um, I mean having my books translated into 20 or 30 languages, although I do have my books translated into about six languages already. Um, I'm not interested in, in my book and my stuff being made movies or that's just not, that's not what my craft is about. And I don't want to be famous. I don't, I, and that's one reason why that big name fan shit really bothers me because I don't want to be, famous I don't want to be a big name fan and even that little bit of recognition is kind of annoying I don't want that I I never did want that I didn't aspire to it I didn't try to get it um I didn't try to become it and uh because I didn't want any part of that I just want my little my little space in fandom um where I can do my thing and people who enjoy my thing can come read my thing and just Otherwise, leave me alone, fandom. <laughs> I don't want to be part of that, that, that thing, that 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 thing you guys do. I want to do my own thing, and um, 
I know that some people find that kind of insulting, and I don't know what to do about that. I'm not going to um, seek out um, attention that I don't want. Uh, and I tolerate the attention that I get. Um, and I, that probably sounds arrogant. I, I just... Anyways, back to the big plot. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna put Jillian on the phone since this was her damn idea. Her her credit, I'm crediting her with the idea. This is not blame. <laughs> <laughs> it was my fucking idea. Yeah. It's yeah, not, yeah, it was her. Fucking lay it idea. all on me. <laughs> Although I thought of a better name for it than than what she in- initially. You did, yeah. Well, I've I've I read a couple um, over the last few weeks. I've read a few stories. That I thought, you, and we've all had this moment. We're like we're reading down, and you read the you read, if you ever you should have all had this moment when you're reading a summary, and the person describes a story, and you go, "Wow, that's fascinating," and the story's marked complete, and then you notice the word count, and you just kind of do a head tilt so sharply you nearly sprain your neck because you cannot figure out how that story can be told in those few words. And there's word economics, and then there's what I call plot vomit, which is what I said to Kira, which is we talk about plot vomit, which is that, you know, it's like it's almost like people get impatient with, getting their plot out there or something and it's like they have they set up and it's like the there's this point of the rising action where it's like they kind of are getting frustrated or something with the plot reveal or something and it just kind of all just kind of comes bleh <laughs> and, and then it's, it's all like, out there okay the end <laughs> you're like whoa <laughs> okay so that's Harry how that Potter all got takes wrapped up over and, the wizarding world and becomes the king Right. And takes six wives and has 300 titles, and it's 30,000 words. And you're going, really? How does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 read a, I was looking at a story once that had, it says, I don't remember, it had a really interesting summary to me or something like that. It had, like, I don't know, 20 characters tagged, and it was marked as complete and it's 10,000 words. And I was like... How are they going to do all that in 10,000 words? Well, I can't it's because... even introduce three characters in 10,000 words. Right, I can't either. And so there's a difference, and so this is, we talk about word economics a lot, but there's the other side of it is if you've got a big idea and you want to explore a big idea, well, there's several, I think there's several things you have to consider. It's like, is your big idea more than one story? Because a million words is not your solution. So first talk about it, is, is it more than one story? But if your idea is big, maybe you have to need to pare it back. So there's lots of things. But the solution to your big story problem is not just to vomit out um, everything all at once. That's just, that's so not So that's what not you're posting looks more like a plot summary or a synopsis than an actual story. Right. But so what you're getting is. I'll be like, I'll be wanting to comment, but I don't. Dude, um, your synopsis looks great. When can we expect the rest of the, the, the actual story? And when 10,000 words reads like a synopsis, you know that would be a million-word novel. Well, five yeah. novels. You know, it's like it's that <laughs> complicated. It's like, wow, it's like that was a synopsis. It would be great if any of that were actually spelled out. And sometimes I see people do a really 
they do a setup. It's like the story's starting out good, you know, it's like they're in the groove, they're in show, not tell. And then it's like, I, it's almost like you see this little break where they go, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to get through all these plot points that I have. And it just all comes out. <laughs> and I just okay. want to go, patience, grasshopper, <laughs> patience. <laughs> So there's a few things. It's like, do you need to be patient with your big-ass plot? Do you need to scale back your big-ass plot? What is the issue with your big-ass plot? Because there needs to be some solution besides vomit. And Kara did come up with a better title than plot vomit, which is what I said. Yeah, that that, that, that was a suggestion for the um, title yeah. of of this podcast. And um, no. I don't even <laughs> like to say the V word, much less put it on my podcast. I don't mean Voldemort. <laughs> Do you prefer, what, reverse peristalsis? Would that work? <laughs> yes, that would be much less inducing. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the word is just as disgusting as the actual action it describes. It, that's true. That's true. Like rotting. Rotting is a disgusting word, and it's also a disgusting, a disgusting action. So, <coughs> but uh, well, you never know what word is going to put somebody off because, like, I find the word <laughs> moist off-putting. <laughs> really, I don't. I do. It's not horribly off-putting. I mean, it's not. It's not awful, but it's it's a little bit like you know. And I find bulky, like when someone's trying to describe someone's genitals as being bulky. I don't, what, I don't even know what that means. Stop. <laughs> so, I, guess, I guess it's like trying to say, I mean, I think they're trying to say that they're like big, I guess maybe. It was, it was, it was said in a positive way. Contextually it was positive, but I was like, that doesn't, it just doesn't, something's like, like but all the time, you know. his desire. I mean, what? <laughs> But everybody, everybody's got different, um, you know, linguistic um, familiarity. So what we heard growing up sounds, you know, right to us. So, like when I when I see or hear tidbit, I'm fine with it. But when I hear titbit, and I know titbit, I think actually predates tidbit, and I know it's more common in certain parts of the world. I just get the giggles. So. Um, <laughs> It's the worst possible thing if, you know, if I'm reading, like, you know, a Sherlock Holmes story and Sherlock's thinking that's an interesting titbit and I just go, I can't. Stop. 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 Stop saying titbit. You know, it's just, but to somebody else, you know, it wouldn't set them off. So, you know, somebody else might find bulky genitals really sexy and I can't even say it. (laughs) (laughs) I find the word titty terrible. I, I I do. Uh, I find titty to be extremely unsexy. I I think there's only one time, like one of out of the thousands of fan fiction stories I've read, that one time I, titty worked for me. But normally I just kind of like, ooh, ooh. Yeah, it's it's no, just so please, juvenile. Please it's very yeah. juvenile and um, immature, and that's not ever going to be sexy for me, ever, ever, ever. Oh no. Oh, 
I like to tell myself that for every fandom out there, there is a subsection of porn. For every fandom, including, unfortunately, My Little Pony. <laughs> it, it's out there. <clears throat> I, I had an unfortunate experience with Pinky and the Brain porn, so, yeah, there's everything. So we're going to talk about how to break your plot down and um, or your idea down into plot events that you can handle. And well, what I, I would say, question, the first question ahead. I think you want to ask yourself is, do you need all that plot? Just because you want it, I mean, you may want it desperately, or you may even think you need it. It sometimes it's just like you need a a critical reassessment. Is how much of this really is vanity or or unnecessary or just not to the main point. I've heard Tough Titty most of my life, too. So I get that. I I get that reference. I don't think it... I don't say it to other people. I guess probably the first time I've ever said it in my adult life, just now, just then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I'm more likely to say tough shit. <laughs> First, of all. yeah, tough Teddy was like somebody trying to be polite instead of saying tough shit, and it was like, you <laughs> push, just polite. say tough shit. <clears throat> but um, I don't know. You know, I think you need to um, yeah, you need to ask yourself um, do these um events to these points. Um, serve your plot? Do they serve your idea or do they serve your ego? On the other side of it, um, if you're writing in fandom, do whatever you want to do, regardless, actually. Um, but there are moments in my, in, in my fan fiction where I am definitely um, kind of indulging myself um, because that's the point. Um, but even when I'm indulging myself, I, I'm paying attention to my economics and my um, my on um, the way my characters speak and the way they move and their vocabulary. All those things come into what into play. So it's just a practice, even to a little vanity. Um, there are, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm not really known for my short works, so um, I could talk work and almost all I want to, and I still got three hundred thousand. <laughs> words and ties that bind but that is a series of novellas instead of an actual one book um, we, 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 which is actually how I handle my slumbering giant when it comes to big ideas um, I tend to write um, um, novellas and episodes um, that way it's easier to break down my, my, my overall idea into Events that are manageable, so I don't end up dumping my whole plot in 10K. Not that I would. Yeah, I, it's also there's something very. <laughs> I'm very. I'm actually fairly comfortable writing the 200, 250,000 word novel, um, and which is which is monstrous size for a novel. But it that is a beast to edit and finish in one go. 
And you can finish the writing and still be editing and betaing and doing corrections and finalizing that shit 18 months later. It's just, it's such, because you get tired. I mean, you just get exhausted working on something that long. Um, that it's but just... You do it in parts. If you do it in novellas, like I did Ties That Bind, it doesn't seem that big right. on the inside. You know, right. we, when you're actually working on it, because you have all these little, these all these little novellas. I think I think the biggest novella in Ties That Bind is 45k. I could be wrong about that. I'm sure if I am, someone's going to correct me in an email. Um, but individually, none of them are, were um, a hassle to to put through beta right. and to edit and to second draft. Because I have to say, second drafting <laughs> an enormous novel. Oh God, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I really do not look forward to second drafting Darkly Lowell. I don't. And it's going to no. be 175, 180k, and I don't look forward to it at all. But when I look back on it, I don't think there's anything in it. I mean, Drawing Lowell is actually pretty tight. It is, yeah. And I, I look back on it, and I, and I tried to look for scenes that I could pull out that were just, you know, pure vanity. And the only thing that I really could pull out of Drawing Lowell is the sex. And what the fuck is the point of writing a threesome with three extremely hot actors if I'm not going to have sex in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello. <laughs> Because you know, that is probably that, the only vanity in Dr. Lowell is the sex scenes. And maybe not even, and I wouldn't even say all of them. Like, some of them I would think would be necessary. Um, but maybe not, you know. I mean, you don't tend to write long, really long sex scenes, so it's not like you're talking thousands and thousands of words of vanity. No, no, no. Um, and by long, I, I mean like, you know. People are okay. asleep long. <laughs> there, there has to be a point. You know what? Honestly, um, I'm, those sex scenes that last seven or eight k. I'm like, what? what? That that's not. Come on now. I I, I actually I I, I skip that. I I start skimming when I when I realize that I've been you know. Two thousand words, and we aren't through kissing. We and, really you know, don't need a play of every single thrust. We really <gasps> Although sometimes that eight K, I don't, I don't know what you call this. You, you might know what you call this. It's a style of writing that is, it's not my thing. I don't think people really love it. Actually, I one of my best friends loves this style of sex scene. It's not purple prose because it doesn't have the words. It's normal language, so it's typical, typical, um, average, you know, common, average, accessible language. But it's t- told such an overwrought style that if, you know there could be a French horns and a choir, and it would seem completely appropriate. It's like you know they're swelling in crescendos and stuff, and it's like, oh, please stop. And I know people really dig that, but that can, it can you can actually not have a lot of detail, but you can have these really really long sex scenes that are not very detailed because they're so overwrought in all of these pinnacles and angst and you know all this this. Now I all know. I can think of is the sex scene in Ice Pirates. 
Passion Storm. There's music. There's rain inside the spaceship. Well, yeah, uh, that kind of, I mean that that kind of sex scene is not my thing. And like I said, I have a friend who, if she tells me a sex scene is great, odds are it's that. And if I tell her a sex scene is great, odds are it's about 500 words of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Somebody was bent over really quick. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, ah! (laughs) You know, everybody has their preferences, right? So, um, but yeah, so that, 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 that sort of, I, I don't even know. Like I said, it always kind of in my head reminds me of purple prose, except it's not. It doesn't have any of the language. It just has that sort of lack of specificity that purple prose has. I call has. that a Jane Austen special. I don't read the meter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it can go on and on and on. And I'm sure they're you know, lovely. Like, That's not really my thing. And some people write that stuff really, really well, but it's just like you know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, not, I'm skipping forward on my Kindle, waiting for the you know the trumpets to be done because I just you're like sometimes you'll be reading it and you'll be wondering at the end of it, was there actually any penetration in that? I, I don't know. You need to back up, find. Is there a spot where the I, dick finds the hole? Come on, where is? Oh no, is this really? One time. What if I read the story? I thought that they were having. Me. I thought this was going on is that they were having sex, and they sort of were, I guess. But it was so vague, but there were all these crescendos and, you know, emotions and riding high on the tide and all of this stuff. Come to find out later, like 10 pages later, it's like, when we finally have sex, I was like, they haven't had sex yet? Back what up. the hell was all that crashing and crescendos that and stuff? What was all that tides and, and blooming? What was that about? I thought there were swells and trumpets and stuff. What the hell happened back there? Apparently that was just a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I was just saying, in your case, I don't. You don't typically write really long, drawn out sex scenes like that. That just. No. So, um, I think you cut all the sex scenes out of Darkly Loyal, and you're not going to save that much editing time. <laughs> no, maybe like I don't know, 10k total out of the whole book. Maybe. Probably not even. I would say five. I'd cut that in half. Give you a 50% estimate on that. But, you know, it's just there are some stories that are big that are single tight focused, single plot that are just long. They're just complicated. They're a complicated chain of events, right? And you conceivably could break them up, but sometimes breaking them up feels kind of unnatural. Because you like you ever read something that was really long, but still felt really tight, which is what I where I think of Darkly Loyal in that. It's long, but it feels tight. Like that is a story, right? So, this, so that's well, the case of where. So I hope you it don't. Out you know, <laughs> that's that's not where I would. That's not the kind of slumbering giant that I would split up. Now, some slumbering giants where I get really big ideas, I can you know feel that there's a lot of moving parts and there's subplots and there's all these little threads that can be explored separately or explore that thread in a different novel or explore that for this this thread in a different episode or whatever. You can kind of feel that you can kind of. Um. um do them, pull them apart. Um, but some some things are just a tight, focused, single idea. Um, Emergence was my return to writing 
and my return to fandom both together because I took a big pause both from writing and from um, and from fandom and you know I've said before if I had to go back I would I would break that up into novellas completely um, I wouldn't I wouldn't choose to do the big because I I start I ended the um, story on rising action leading into the next book. Um, which seemed like a which good a idea at no the time. No. Yeah, yeah, it is a big no-no, but it does seem like a good idea at the time, which I don't know why. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. Um, and I think I was I think I was exhausted by the story at that point and tired of uh, and and um and it's just, it was a lot of it was sort of like a a perfect storm of bad decisions. So it was like I was tired of hearing from people, when are you going to finish it, 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 when are you going to finish it. And I was newly back to fandom, and I wasn't policing my boundaries very well. And I was just like, I'm just going to finish it. (laughs) Right. Let's let's cause the action to rise again. Well, it's like, no, that's not a good idea. But part of the problem was... Which is kind of like a subconscious fuck you to everybody who emailed you wanted to know when you were going to finish it. Yeah, probably. But the thing is, I should have ended the story that that arc. I was pro- I was in the third arc um, where I ended it. I was on the rising action into what should have been the third arc, not the second. So, um, I, mean, I could go back and redo it, but it's just one of those things. It's like there are times when I get really like I'm in an editing kind of mood, but it doesn't happen often. You know, where you just like <laughs> I'm gonna edit. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna edit for the next fuck out of that month and a half <laughs> it just doesn't happen very often so where i just that's what i want to do um so but i mean it does happen there are times when i'm when i'm feeling more like i want to like it's more of an anal retentive mindset which is better for poking at things and that kind of thing as opposed to being creative so i tend to do big blocks of editing but i have a lot of things on the plate you know way ahead of editing re-editing that story so but that's a case of where a big idea that, um, you know, I, I'll hold that as, up as an example of a big idea that should have been cut into three parts. Um, actually, of what people see, it should have been cut into two and a half parts. Yeah, two and a half parts. Um, what I would also caution um, you about, not you personally, but just you as the, the writer that we're talking to, um, is... In no way is what I'm about to say actually Chris and Lady Holder's fault. It's my fault. Um, when I was um, working through the parts of Lantean Legacy and, and how um, I wanted to build up the events for my books, I I waffled back and forth about what book two would be about, mostly because during the initial beta of what I had written to be my book to, um, Chris and Lady Holder had a lot of questions about what had happened in between um, book one and book two. Um, and they were questions that I had answers for that because because No Enemy Within was so tight, I wanted to repeat that experience with book two in such a way that I... I was very mercenary about what I added to various scenes and what um, information uh, 
was given out. I was very mercenary about it, and I don't know why. It was a very weird place for me to be. And then I got so focused on answering their questions, I thought, okay, well, I need a, I need a different book, too. This is no longer book two. This is book three. <laughs> and so what I would say um, is um, that when you're when – you're, you need to – Police your boundaries, even with your beta, um, especially if you have betas who are um, very engaged and who are talented in their own right. And Lady Holder and Chris both are. They're they're very um, um, they're very rich in their thinking and in their dynamic as betas. Um, and if you don't police your own boundaries um, when, when you have a beta like that, and I think I'm the same kind of beta. If you let me in. I will take over your shit. So you need <laughs> So you need to be comfortable um with your beta enough that you can say, No, this is not what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this instead. Um and I wasn't policing my boundaries and I wasn't really paying attention to what my plot wanted and I kind of faltered on what book two was supposed to be because I wanted to answer all these questions for them. But on the other side of it, that wasn't the book two that I had originally envisioned. Um, so I faltered on writing it because it it wasn't something that I ever intended on writing to begin with. And so, origin- eventually, I, I let go of that and went back to my original book, too, and w- which is what appeared on my site eventually after beta. <coughs> but even that went through some serious changes as I tried to address the questions that they had regarding events that had taken place between book one and book two. Because I wanted book one to be on Atlantis, and I wanted book two to focus on what was happening on Earth. But... um their questions made me question whether or not my book two should still be on Atlantis. And so that became um, a big stumbling block as far as that goes. And um, (laughs) when you have a big idea like Atlantean Legacy, um, once you make your plan, um, it's important to adhere to it because if you don't, you're going to it's going to crash and burn. Oh, no, don't. Don't apologize because you didn't do anything wrong. That was totally on me. I got too focused on um, meeting expectations that I let my plan fall apart. And that was totally all on me. You know, that's that's um, something that I had to deal with. But on the other side of it, while you should make a plan and adhere to it, your plan can't be concrete because if it is, You'll you'll have you'll you'll have the experience that I had because my plan was very much concrete in my mind, and when I didn't meet their expectations with book two, um, I came like fa- like I I, I face planted on my plot basically. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because I was like I have these expectations, but they had these expectations, and where did I fail? I've I've done something wrong, and um. Then I was, because my plot points were so fucking concrete (coughs) that I could not, that I kind of just stalled on the whole thing. (coughs) So respect your plan, um, but I guess leave yourself room to maneuver. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes sense to me because I mean, there's there's um. I think you have to trust your own intuition, and there's a thing where we um. I mean, I don't know if anybody else does this, but it's something that I oh. No, don't do that. Go stop it. Sorry, my screen just went dark, and so I lost the chat room. It was like, wait, no. <laughs> um, but that's when we're we're writing, and we, and, and I, t- I don't think there's ever been a writer I haven't ever talked to, who when they have a problem, and some people are really quick to figure out where their problems are, but some people just go, I just know there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. And maybe that's the time to get an alpha reader. Some people just need to sit on it and think about it. Some people need to get a couple weeks to, a couple weeks uh, away from it and then go back and reread it, and maybe the problem will become clear. Um, but the other flip side of that is so like we know – and you, you could have four, four people read it and tell you it's perfect, and you will still know there's something not right. And this is where I think it's like it's important to trust your own creative voice because I have had – I've been talked into thinking something was was okay that didn't wasn't what I wanted. And it wasn't so much that it wasn't what I wanted. It was like I knew there was a problem, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was. And I got some feedback, and people were like, oh, no, it's lovely. It's just great the way it is. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm out to lunch. And then it was like a month later, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night going, aha, that's what's there wrong with is. that. <laughs> and I was pissed as hell that I went forward with something that, that that I should have just sat on it. I should have had some patience. And maybe it's like the theme of this this podcast. You need, a little, you need to give yourself patience. There is no rush. There is no there's no trophy at the end for finishing first, for having the most words. This is there's there's no there's no prize. You know the that be be patient with your writing. So the, the there's trusting your intuition. So one side of it is there's a problem. And give yourself the patience and the time to let yourself figure out what the problem is. Before, before potentially before you go on, maybe you need to go on a different project. Um, maybe you do need to keep going on this one, but if you're prepared to back up, if you can't sort it out, I don't know. But the other side um, is when you know something's right. You know it's right. Everybody's giving you different ideas, but you know that the idea you've got and the thing you're doing is the right thing. That's the story you want to tell. Fuck all those other voices. Tell the story you want to tell. It doesn't matter what your beta says, your best friend, your alpha reader, your fans. It doesn't matter anybody on this podcast. It doesn't matter. If that's if you've got the idea in your head and you know that's the story you want to tell and you know this is the way you want to tell it, you need to trust that voice and you need to tell that story. Because that is being genuine and that is being authentic and that is going to be a story you're going to be able to finish because that is the story that you want to tell and not the story you feel like you're being maneuvered into telling. Right. Yeah. And no one wants to feel like they've been manipulated into telling a story by their fans or by – and most people who participate with you in any way in your writing process certainly don't want to feel like they are – Manipulating your process. That's not. I doubt that that's anybody's intent. Um, at least not. But I mean, if I'm you sure have some, an asshole like that in your process, get rid of them. Kick them to the curb. Yeah. Space Most them. people are very genuinely trying to help, but you know, sometimes you you have your creative vision, and 
maybe nobody else gets it. And you need to just go forward with with your vision and just do it. And if no and if still no still nobody gets it after you finish it, so what? There's something so satisfying in telling the story that you want to tell the way you want to tell it and not be derailed midway through by, you know, the voices saying, well, wouldn't it be neat if so-and-so did this? It's like, well, no, that's not where I was going at all. I mean, you know, anybody who's, you know, we all have that experience where we posted something and somebody goes, oh, wouldn't it be so great if so-and-so did this? And you're like scratching your head going, where did they get that direction from? I'm not going there at all. That's not int- That's one reason why I am always very um, um, concerned about posting works in progress, because sometimes readers can intrude on your process with their comments. And even if it's not on purpose, it's really super profoundly, extremely annoying. And one of the problems that I'm encountering on Wild Hair um, is because it is a work in progress site, basically. Um, um, most of everything on there is a work in progress. Um, not not everything, but most of it is a work in progress. And there are people, um, readers, who are commenting, who aren't getting approved, um, who seem really, really horrifically focused on inserting their own wants and desires into um, what's being produced over there. Um, and that kind of comment's never going to get approved. So you're you're just wasting your time. I'm everything on there is moderated and it's not going to happen. The the writers on Wild Hair don't even see pending comments, so they're not ever going to see that bullshit you're putting up to begin with. Not even in a pending comment because they don't see them. Um, and it's it's just it's really profoundly intrusive for you, for anyone to insert your own wishes and desires on another person's writing. So when you are in an alpha reader situation, um, and honestly, not everybody's capable of being an alpha reader. Just because someone is your beta doesn't mean they can be your alpha. And vice versa. Sometimes there are people who are really good alpha readers who have absolutely no business whatsoever being a beta. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <coughs> some honestly, people and some people, some people don't have the skill set to I'm be a better a beta reader. reader than I am a beta. I mean, I I definitely think I'm a, a better alpha reader than I am a beta reader. Um, it's just you I know. think you do both well. Oh, I I would say that I I would say that um, good alpha readers are really hard to come by. So mm. it, it's like you know, um, I. Just selfishly, like, shove you back in the alpha bucket. Not because I don't think you beta well, because you do. You beta exceptionally well. But I'm like, get your butt back in the alpha bucket. <laughs> I don't want to lose a beta. Because it's really, you know, it is hard to find um, an alpha reader who um, can set aside their own personal quirks and ideas and wants for a story and can really give you the kind of feedback that you need to fix a problem. Um, not everybody's capable of it. Yeah. Um, an, an alpha reader is someone who can look at your whole picture. They can see your whole picture and tell you, and, and if you ask them, okay, what's wrong with my characterization? 
what's wrong here? And I'll be like, okay, did you actually mean for so-and-so to be a little homophobic? Was that what you what you were intending? Or, okay, um, I know this isn't actually your pairing, but could you tell me why there's so much sexual tension going on right here? <laughs> I'm not picking on you. Um, <laughs> I thought that was your pairing. I really did. Um, but also, <coughs> um, they can look at your plot and say, okay, uh, did you mean for your falling action to abruptly start rising again? Um, so when you're looking at the alpha reader, you need an alpha reader who is very much on their game when it comes to characterization, um, plot structure, um, the beginning, the middle, and the end, um, scene structure, and character movement. And not everybody is capable of doing that. This isn't a, um, a criticism of anybody that I've ever worked with as far as betas and alphas go. Um, some people do it well, some people don't. Um, and it's uh, the ones I found to be the most the most terrible at it are the ones who really just volunteered to read to get it early, which is the worst kind of alpha or beta you will ever have. Yeah, they don't really want to help you. They just want to read your shit early before everybody else does. Yeah, alpha reading, you know, alpha reading, um, if someone's sending you back commas and grammar and stuff, they're not, unless you have a systemic problem, like they're just noticing that you're, you know, misplacing a certain type of comma and they mention it. That, but that's really more, when you're talking about grammar structure and that style, that kind of thing, style, that kind of consistency thing, that's all more the beta thing, Um yeah, dark says the alpha is the forest and the beta is the tree. Um, that's basically it. Yeah, um, because the alpha reader is, you know, because sometimes you're doing something, something doesn't feel right, and you know, Kira's alpha. Because usually I prefer to have a story finished before I or close to finished before I try to get some sort of feedback. But sometimes you're partway through and you're just struggling, and then you can say, look, could you read over these few scenes or these couple of chapters and tell me if this is resonating? And so there's one Kira helped me on where she read the early chapters of it, and she went, this is not really how you've ever portrayed Tony. He comes across kind of cowardly. And it was, and is that what you intended? And I was like, well, huh, huh? no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had to go back and reread it, and I realized I had, because I was trying to solve a plot problem, um, and I had sacrificed characterization for a plot problem. And I knew there was a problem, but I w- couldn't figure out what it was because my solution to the problem had been this sacrifice and so it was just one of those things that becomes hard to, de- to to pull the threads and decode it in your own head. And so what happened, I had to throw the whole thing. I had to throw that whole solution out and find another another way of handling it. And um, but she she read it. She was like, "Well, this is he." And so it was really that that was a, a lot of times it's more characterization feedback, but sometimes it's also for me. I'm usually looking more at characterization feedback or something like that, but. Also, sometimes you're looking for giant plot inconsistencies. It's like, well, do you know that you just destroyed the universe when you when this happened, right? I mean, based upon <laughs> these events, that this whole the whole Shit universe just destroyed. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, a whole oh, I didn't mean to do that. I, <laughs> I didn't mean to destroy all life on Earth. Let me go back, <laughs> re replot that point. But um, 
But sometimes you do miss things, you know. And, like, normally I don't miss um, chemistry between characters. So oh, that alphabet was really I was important. I because... kind of embarrassed because um, I was like, what do you mean it's not your parent? <laughs> Because I didn't tell her the parent, I just and it wasn't in the header. Because I have my header in a separate file, so I just sent her this word, and she reads it and goes, "Wow, the, the sexual tension between them. You cut it with a knife. When are they ever going to have sex?" So I was like, "That's not the pairing." <laughs> like, are you sure? <laughs> so I go back and read it, and I was like, "Oh, that is the pairing." <laughs> Totally the pairing. <laughs> but I'm usually not a but but see the thing is so, so what happens sometimes and this is where this kinda of ties into sometimes where readers can say things that kind of like makes you kinda of go, Waha, I don't understand. Um uh, so I was um and so sometimes when it comes to did I miss so now I'm in the mode of, you know, because I've had this one thing where I completely missed character chemistry. Um so I I had a moment where I thought I had done it again with a work that was finished, and I went back to Kira, and I go, did I miss this? And she said, no, because somebody had, had written me. I, was, I had actually uh, started plotting um, the uh, sequel to um, If Found, Please Return, because I'm all stuck in this Tony's a Shepherd mode, and so like almost everything I'm working on that's Stargate-related has Tony as a Shepherd in it, um, all but one story, I think. And anyway... Um, so I was working on the plot for that, and while I'm doing that, I get somebody comments about, um, and this is where it's not just publishing works in progress where reader feedback can throw you off. Because when you publish a work where you think you might want to write a sequel, or where you definitely plan to write a sequel, or where it's already it's in the universe, it's built in, like you're going to write a series of novellas. Like I knew when I published Vicious that I was going to be writing um, a it's called the Vicious Chronicles, and it was going to be um, four, four, four novellas in that series. So I mean, I knew that at the beginning. So it's not like it's like what I, maybe someday I'll write a sequel. I already know what's coming in that series. So it's not just like somebody throws me off after one chapter where reader feedback can kind of get under your skin. It's in between the finished works, you know you finish a work and you're working on the sequel or you're plotting or you're writing or even sometimes editing or whatever and somebody makes a comment and you're like, what, what? And so somebody was talking about all the chemistry between Gibbs and Tony and if found, please return, would it be great if they get together? And I was like, I was like, look at under, I was like almost looked under my bed from where that chemistry was. I'm like, did I put chemistry somewhere? What's really I thought I had a total mentor, huh? Is that throughout if found, when Patrick is introduced, Throughout that whole story, Patrick and Gibbs are being compared to one another. And Patrick is even kind of jealous of the relationship that Gibbs has with his son. This is not a romantic relationship that Patrick is jealous of. No. If it was, it'd be disgusting. Right. So I was, I was, I, I thought, and I thought I was very careful about how I was crafting, because normally I do write, if I'm going to write Gibbs and Tony in a story, it's either going to be friends only or romantic partners. So writing this kind of mentor, borderline father figure 
was very deliberate, and I I very carefully planned out how I did their interactions and how they spoke to each other and what their vibe was like because it was such a departure from anything else I had ever written. And so when I got that feedback about Gibbs and Tony getting together, I was like, did I do it again? That's just OTP blindness with it. It's just just literally OTP blindness. Yeah, immediately with Takira and I said, did I do it again? And she said, no. <laughs> he did not. In fact, one of the things I admire most about If Found um, is the way that Gibbs slowly but surely lets go of the son he sees in Tony because now there's Patrick there and that's a father that he can respect and he can trust Tony with. And you see it. You see Gibbs slowly but surely letting go of Tony. Um, it is very much not a romantic um, situation. It's just, it's not. And it's really, but I think it really just boils down to OTP blindness. There are some people who only see one kind of interaction for their OTP. Um, and it is, it's a very bittersweet um, note running through if found where Gibbs is letting go of, of Tony as um, kind of an adopted son. And I don't know how anybody could really see anything else in it, but okay. <laughs> well, because I had that one moment, a thing that had happened in an alpha, and I thought I was so careful about how I crafted their relationship dynamic in that story. It so threw me for a loop. But that's an example of how some things can throw you off your stride and it's really important that you stick to what you believe to what what's and if you're not sure is that you have somebody you trust that you can go to and say you know shove the picture in their face and go is this what I think it is just what I did oh my god what did I do I don't know. It's just, um, it just seemed very paternal to me from from the from the get go. Yeah, which was the intention. It was supposed to be very. It was supposed to be because at that stage in the story, I mean, even in the canon, I mean, Gibbs is a little all over the place. Um, um, but he was very protective of Tony in that uh, episode where Tony was framed. So it was kind of a natural um, lead up to. Um, the way he was in that story, but in some stories it it derails you. It's weird because it's like it's almost like it doesn't matter what anybody would say. Like some stories, I have such a strong vision for, and like nobody could shake it. It's not like it. And I think here's right. It's important that you not be concrete because if you fix an idea in stone, then when there's a problem. You can't recover from it, you know. Well, you can, but that stone has to break first, and that's really uncomfortable. Um, but some stories, it's like you know, people could say anything they wanted. Pretty much, it doesn't matter what bizarre feedback I get about vicious. I just kind of go, uh huh, and move on because I'm really clear about the direction of that story, and like I feel like nothing's going to sway me from my course. Because nobody knows what I'm doing but me, you know. It's like this is all in my head, and every I see people guessing sometimes about where I'm headed with it. I'm like, you have no clue, so hush. 
<laughs> but other stories, it's funny, there are other stories where sometimes people say stuff that just kind of like where they have so misinterpreted what I've done where I just, and in a way, that, and they're complimenting me for this misinterpretation. And what they're misinterpreting to me is kind of ugly, and I'm kind of going, ew, did I write that? Right. You know, it's like, ah, and it kind of throws me off my game. So, um, like, it's so amazing that you did this really ugly thing with Tony. I'm like, I didn't do that ugly thing with Tony. And why are you complimenting me for that? <laughs> that You know, one of the weirdest things I ever got was um, a lecture in my email um, about ties that bind where I failed to warn for politics. I know. I'm going to sprain my neck. 900 words of lecture from me failing to warn for politics. Um, okay. I just, I'm, like, I'm not going to warn you for politics. And even if, and but even if, even, I if it, was, even if it was warranted, which it isn't. Right, because I, you know, that just really astounds me, even to this day, that that's the problem they had with ties to bind, that I didn't warn for politics. But apparently, you know, they were fine with um, the spankings and the, the voyeurism and the sadism and the masochism and the torture. But a brief mention <coughs> of politics early on in the story about... Um, the Ownership Act apparently deserved a warning on every single part. Something that was happening off screen that was never actually going to come to um, anything anyway apparently deserved a special warning. You might as well just put a warning on every story and go, odds are the characters, some character at some point is going to talk about something that's going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Pol- yeah, new warning, politics rimming hat slash fluffy bunnies running amok. If I ever have fluffy bunnies running amok, I will definitely warn for it because you need to be warned for that kind of shit. <laughs> oh, people. I guess what I'm, what I'm saying about that is that it's... um. Uh, that it's important to insulate yourself um, as a writer, especially when you're um, publishing your work like in episodes um, or novellas and you intend to write more like Julie is going to do for If Found, um, that you you leave yourself flexible, but only for certain people. And I've gotten a lot of flack about this before. Um, I'm going to say it. Again, I don't care if it makes people mad. 99% of your readers are not qualified to give you beta. And constructive criticism is a myth. I'm just saying. (coughs) So, um, yeah. That's pretty much what I think about that. <laughs> so don't listen to those nutters. 
No, it's a little bit. I think. I think. I, I love a lot like of. I love letters. I think a lot. I mean, a lot. A lot of the advice we give about. I think about. You know the the big plot or the slumbering giant or breaking things up into episodes are really for people who either plot, well, both either either plot and, well, actually, it's, a lot of it's more geared towards plotters, but also towards pantsers who finish their work and then post it, as opposed to people who both, you know, um, some of it wor- works for people who plot and post as they go, but also for people. Uh, but, but if you pants, I think if you pants and post as you go, I think you're you're like in the most vulnerable position ever. I agree. Um, uh, in, in terms of online, because if you're pants, there's nothing wrong with pants. I mean, I have been a. I, I started. I started my my first fan fiction was pants. Um, pants my ass off for like I don't know. Seven hundred fifty thousand words, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then and, and then, then <laughs> I know all about panting your ass off. So, um, but when you are posting as you go and you're pantsing, you are in. And if you don't have really really good boundaries, you are in the most vulnerable position to your readers. And if you're working on a slumbering giant. You've got all these voices coming at you, messing with, potentially messing with your voice. Because it doesn't matter how much we want to say that we're just going to ignore that shit. We're just going to, um, we're going to, you know, just ignore whatever these people say. We're just going to block it out. And to a degree, not giving in to the voices is not the same thing as not hearing them. And when you hear them, because you can't help but hear them, and when you hear them, they can bug you, and they can throw you off your stride, and they can make it hard to write for days and days and days on end, or weeks or months. So you've got to find a way to insulate yourself and protect yourself from the crazy if you are in that most vulnerable position of both pantsing, where you don't really know exactly where your story is going, and you're posting as you go. Because if you're a pantser and you finish your story and then post it, you're golden in terms of this stuff. Um, and if you're a plotter posting as you go, as long as you're really tight, you're determined to stick to your plot and not ignore that stuff, you can still get thrown off your stride, but whatever. But you can get derailed by people doing the what if, called whispering voices. You have all these little voices going, oh, wouldn't it be cool if Tony did this? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if Rodney did this? I can't wait until Rodney does this thing with so-and-so. And you're sitting there thinking, Rodney was never going to do that thing with so-and-so. That was never in my plan. Did I miss something obvious? And then you start questioning yourself. Well, and that goes down to the fact that often really friendly, positive feedback can be more damaging than hostile feedback because you can get mad at hostile feedback and say, fuck them, that's what they're talking about. But then you have that one person who'd be like, oh, gushing all over your plot, and then they'll insert into their really positive, you're so awesome feedback, all the things they want to happen in your story. And it's so positively written that you're like, oh, it's just, they love my own. They want me to do that? Because 
just I don't feel like you do any of that stuff. <laughs> but they love it so much. Well, and sometimes you, you know, sometimes you clearly foreshadow something. Like you talk about the fact that you know Rodney's going to go back to Earth and he's going to talk to his sister. Okay, you said it's going to happen. So people say, "I'm looking forward to Rodney going back to Earth and talking to his sister." But you know, if your plot has no mention of Rodney going back to Earth for any reason, and people start talking about, "I can't wait till Rodney's back on Earth and he takes these people to task and gives them a smackdown over this issue," and you're like, "What?" I wasn't even planning on that. It's like, why are you bitches can't wait for that? Why did I foreshadow something? And then you start like looking up your own skirt, wondering if you misplaced something. Because you're like, I didn't. Did I foreshadow something? Are my readers seeing something that I didn't see? And you start questioning yourself. And because it's not that it's bad feedback, it's not that it got under your skin and made you angry. It made you wonder if there's something in between the lines that you missed. Did you foreshadow something you didn't intend to? Did you? Did you? Bait and switch, you know, because that's kind of that's really a terrible habit for a writer to have <laughs> to say they're going to do something and not. Um, so, you know, it's really important to remember that, especially the longer your project. And sometimes I wonder if what I call plot vomit is um, with stories that I can almost feel or pants is if it's a response to that kind of feedback. It's like, oh, okay, all you nice people, shut up. Here's everything that's happening. <laughs> Blah. And they just sort of, you know, spew it out there. And you're just kind of going, oh, I guess that answers all the questions all at once. Or you're like me, and you have a reader who guesses your plot in advance of you posting, and he makes you so mad you replot to avoid their suggestion. Because I am that person. Um, I had someone guess a plot point um, for a future episode in Sentinels of Atlantis, and I totally rewrote the last... I totally replotted the last episode of Sentinels of Atlantis to avoid the plot point they guessed. Because I was so irritated. I had someone guess a critical plot point in a story once. Um, and it was something I could not change. I mean, I it had that I had that instant urge of I'm going to go change it. Um, but I had this, but there was something that it was like it would, it would unravel the whole story. It was like, and I just, I could, just couldn't do it. And I just sort of mentally then prepared myself for if I heard from them, um, claiming, "Oh, I see, I inspired you," because I was just you know, like mentally psyching oh, myself up for. Oh, I fucking hate that. I'll be like, "Oh, yo, congratulations on guessing my fucking foreshadowing." Yeah, I foreshadowed that. You're just so smart. That's not annoying at all. And I know that, and I know that a lot of readers. Some, there, there are a couple of readers that I've run across where it feels like very deliberate the way they um, feels passive aggressive and deliberate. It's like they're criticizing you with 
with compliments or telling you what to do with and it's done in such a nice polite way you, you almost and you know it's like you, it's, it's sort of like it's one of those things like you're kind of going well if this ever went to court and I yelled at this person I'd be the asshole <laughs> so because it's all said so nicely that it could be such a misunderstanding you know um but it really kind of just gets under your skin and annoys you but the majority 90% of people have nothing but good intentions with their with their comments um but one of the things about when you're picking up on foreshadowing or what you think are foreshadowing when you're reading between the lines is you might be completely wrong or you could be completely right and the author might not appreciate either I have a habit of deleting feedback that pisses me off like that on my site because I don't care. I've had, I've had most... might leave them unapproved. I think I've got like 75 unapproved comments that have annoyed me. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them. Trash them. <laughs> I know. It's one of those things that probably like at me cathartic to go through. This has annoyed me. Delete, 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 delete. There's probably actually some comments that haven't annoyed me that have gotten stuck in between the annoying comments, so I actually need to go read them all. I used to keep comments that pissed me off, and then I stopped because I realized it was kind of like emotional masochism. Um, It really is. You don't have time for that kind of negativity in your life. Just delete their shit. Delete, delete, delete. You'll feel better. Delete all. (laughs) Fuck it. One of the most pitiful things I see in fandom are writers who (laughs) ask for ideas for what should happen next. Oh, honey. No. It's always a bless your heart moment when I say, oh, bless your heart. Don't do that. (laughs) Because you're just opening yourself up to so much abuse. Because while fandom is awesome, there is an underbelly of of fandom that is disgusting. And we all know it. We all know... um, we all know of authors who have been hounded out of fandom by fans. People who would claim to even be their fan, um, who harass them so much they fucking stop posting. Because nobody needs that, and you're just opening yourself up to that kind of feedback and that kind of re- and that kind of the thing is you're also it's not just opening yourself up to feedback potentially you don't want. So let's say everybody gives you something, or let's say you don't care what people say. Let's say you're able to just blow off the comments you don't like, or maybe you really do want people to help set the direction of your story. I find that bizarre. I'm a control freak, so I really can't understand. Um, creativity by committee, you know, like, it's like, you know, well, we, I want you to go this direction of the story. Kiss my ass. I'm going the other way. You know, that's sort of like, I'm going to do it what I want. I am never, ever doing that. It's going to be like a Taylor Swift song. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. <laughs> <laughs> but I break so up with you. Fact, <laughs> let's say, let's say you, you're, you're, when people say constructive criticism greatly appreciated or whatever, let's say that they're the person who doesn't mind any of that stuff. They don't mind the person who points out every missing apostrophe in there or every misplaced apostrophe in their 
in their document or whatever. Let's say, let's say that you're the person who doesn't care, okay? You're also opening yourself up to a certain relationship now with all of these people. And you want quickly become abusive. Yeah. And they're going to think that they're, they gave you this piece of advice that you took or they gave you a suggestion that you took. And now they're going to feel a sense of entitlement and a sense of ownership of that idea and the direction that it goes and feel, you know, feel, feel they have the right to tell you where it goes next or what to do with it or maybe express disappointment. Well, you didn't do that quite the way I was thinking. That's not what I intended. I mean, you create, you're creating, you're bringing someone else It's one thing to bring. I was, this is going to sound terrible. This is going to sound terrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're, it's one thing to bring a reader who you know, who's like a friend that you develop a relationship with, into your process, and they become part of your creative process, offline, not in public. But you, I, I just can't imagine bringing a fan into my process like that in public. It's just weird to me. I can't. I wouldn't do it. I can't do it. I, it's just. It's like it breaks my brain. And that sounds really. I probably well, sound terrible. Is, like, no, it, it doesn't sound terrible at all because writing is a very intimate process. Writing is um, it creatively. Um, uh, it's a very intimate thing you do. I mean, it's it's a product of of that's unique to you. Nobody else can write the way you write. Means they can mimic you. They and I have encountered that recently. People Oh, honeys. <laughs> and I don't know if people do it on purpose, but sometimes you'll encounter writers who who mimic you. Um, who, who mimic your style and your voice and maybe it's because they haven't found their own voice yet. Um and they're still working through that, and that's one of the reasons why I think fandom is really valuable because it allows you to grow and mature and um, and 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 hone your craft um, and find your voice. But when you don't really know what your voice is, you're easily manip- you're you're easily not manipulated, but you're easily influenced by others. Um, so I have encountered um, stories in fandom where I thought that sounds really familiar, but it's not so much the content. As it is, that really looks like my work, but it's not my work. I'm really enjoying this. This is great. This looks just like it's not my work, but it it, it reads like my work. <laughs> it has the same flow of my work. This person is using my voice. It's really weird. I've encountered it a couple of times. I don't know what to do about it because it's it's just it's bizarre. Yeah, I, well, I see. I see two forms of mimicry with your work. I only see, I only see one with mine, um, and and the two things I see with you is I see people trying to mimic your dialogue voice, which I think is like the single biggest mimicry mistake anybody could make, because mimicking, um, it's hard to mimic someone's voice anyway, um, but Kira has a particular gift for witty dialogue. Um, I think I'm good at dialogue, but I don't try to write witty dialogue because it's not my strength. So I don't even go there. Um, I don't try. It just happens because I'm a sarcastic bitch. Right, because you're sarcastic and witty. So when you write dialogue, it comes off sarcastic and witty. Um, I tend to write 
Now, sometimes my dialogue gets funny, but it's not witty and funny are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and actually, I had somebody had somebody told me that I I that um, I was trying to be witty like you with something I had written that had come off funny, and I actually pointed out to them that witty and funny are not the same thing, and that somebody telling a funny story is not the same thing as being witty, and that they really needed to consult their references. Um, but anyway, is so so I see that. So I see the people trying to mimic your character voices, which is the way you write the witty dialogue, the banter, the way your characters use language. And I think that that is like it's like one of the worst. Um, it's probably one of the worst mistakes I think an author can make is to try to mimic that kind of voice because it's just um, it always it's going to fall flat. You're never, probably not going to do it as well, and. Um, it's usually really transparent. It's like it's like Kira, but but not as good. <laughs> and you don't want anybody reading your stuff going, "It's like Kira, but not as good." And that's just not who wants that, right? Um, the other thing, and I've actually referenced this. I've called the Kira Marcos trope blender, <laughs> which is something like takes all the tropes she likes. Imagine taking all the tropes that Kira writes in her stories. So she's in a few tropes she uses more commonly than others, like let's say Lord Harry or soulmates. Or whatever, and you throw them all in a blender. And I'm not saying Kira's the only one that uses these tropes, but let's say the ones that Kira likes. And you hit blend, and you pull out a cup of it. Well, not all of those tropes go together. <laughs> so like, um, there's been some comments in the chat room. Um, we're not talking about snark in itself or banter in itself. Um, Dark, you have a very specific style in your character. Um, I've I've read your work. Um, you have a very specific style of your own, um, and your banter back and forth between your characters is absolutely nothing like mine. I would agree. Um, nobody would ever confuse the two of us when it comes to that, because you, like me, you also make very specific choices, whether you 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 may know this or not. Because um, a lot of times this, this can be an unconscious choice that you make when you're writing. Um, but your characters have a rhythm that mine don't. We have a very different rhythm um, when it comes to the banter, and that's what we're talking about people mimicking. Um, I've actually seen people mimic you um, when it comes to your character um, speech because I could do a whole podcast on dialogue and how two people um, have a conversation and how um, vocabulary and voice rhythm and method and movement when it comes to um, conversation um, and how that is different from author to author. And yes, Zan, I'm 100% positive that nobody will ever write the way I do, whereas nobody will write the way you do. People will mimic other writers, but writers are unique. Mm -hmm. There is there something are, unique are... about every single writer that is not that cannot be duplicated. And I didn't mean what I said to mean that every time I read something or I read witty banter in a story that I think someone's copying Kira. I do not mean that at all, at all. But when I re – because I read a lot of stories that have witty dialogue that I don't think of Kira at all. So if the first <laughs> thing I think of when I'm reading witty dialogue is, did Kira write this? Then I'm immediately going to go to – my first thought is that this premise is mimicking Kira because it's, if it's too – it's like, but there's 
you know, actually I read something recently, I actually thought she did write it from the dialogue, but I was like, what is with her plot holes? And then I realized I wasn't reading one of her stories. So. <laughs> like, what's the plot holes, Kara? No word so. if you post under another name. No <laughs> plot holes are ridiculous. Is your plot hole account? I don't have hell? a second um, fandom pen name. Okay, I don't. I promise. Yeah, people I don't. have. I mean, it's one, of those, it's one of the things that's actually really difficult to change for an author is the way their um, is their is is their voice is how they you know how they how they how they string words together. It's just different from person to person. So I'm not saying that every person who writes a witty character is is trying to be cured not at all because there are there's a lot of people who write really witty um stuff it's not my strength i love reading it uh, but it there is a difference usually... between the 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 method and the rhythm of um yeah. and i do think that dialogue is one of my better strengths it's um the one place where i think my craft really shines and my characterization um is spot on in my dialogue um I'll tell anybody that there are two things I do really well. That's dialogue and sex. Yep. It's yeah, important I think... to recognize your strengths, and that way you can figure out what your flaws are and your and your weaknesses. Um, but like I was talking about Dark um, and Dark Serafina and her and her banter um, is is spot on, and, and and her characters move through her scenes very well. But we. Um, we don't have the same banter. You could put two scenes opposite on a screen of her writing and my writing and both characters. And if we had our characters having the same conversation um, where they were discussing the same topic, you would know the difference between the two of us based merely on our voice um, rhythm when we write. Um, And that's the thing that gets mimicked. It's the voice, not so much the content. And I think because my dialogue is my better feature, people are capable, or even subconsciously, um, readers pick up those kinds of, um, new writers pick up those kinds of um, techniques in your writing, and they mimic them, um, not on purpose. Every writing group has that one person who thinks they're Hemingway. I've never joined a real physical life writing group where there wasn't a Hemingway. I hate that writer. <laughs> I hate that writer. Yeah, you're 10, saying, oh, please words, stop. You still haven't gotten a piece of dialogue. Come on now. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's an unconscious thing that you do when you don't have a um, solid voice in your head of your own writing. Um, and um, it differs from different from from writer to writer. Um, and if we took six writers and ha- and gave each one of them the same topic, and said, okay, you can use two characters to discuss this topic, and these are the facts of this topic. And all six writers would do it differently. I don't get your question, Rogue. Are some characters written differently because of the difference between TV and anime? I I don't get what you mean. I, I'm not in any anime fandom, so maybe that's the that's the the break. 
I've read in some anime fandoms, but I've never written in any of them, but I'm not so much sure I understand the question. Yeah. Rephrase. <laughs> Help us out. Are you trying to say that our characters written differently between TV characters? <coughs> are TV characters written differently than anime characters? Well, anime in itself is a very, very specific restricted style. My husband has a huge anime collection and I um I watch it in passing and there is a distinct style between anime and any other kind of um You mean like animated characters versus real characters? I A character is a character is a character. Yeah, it should be. I mean, that's the way I would approach. It. And the only time I've read anime is when the when the when the author cast a real life a, did did a cast for the for this for the thing because I can't I just mentally can't get there because I don't really watch a lot of anime. I wa- I watched I like watch one or two shows for not not episodes. Like there were a couple of shows I watched a few episodes of. Um. So. I had some familiarity when I was reading some fan fiction, but I couldn't I couldn't do the mental adjustment to read stories about cartoon characters in my head. That's the way I thought of them. Um, so the only time I so I had to visualize real people. So was, the only time I ever read anime stories is when the author does a, re, a real life cast, um, and then I just you know. But I didn't and I didn't have any problem envisioning once I had those mental pictures in my head. I didn't have any problems envisioning what was being said by whom and their interactions and stuff. Um, so I, I can't. That's a character just, that's should, me a, should be three-dimensional no matter what the medium is. Yeah. Um, they should be um, living and breathing in their environment. Um, they should each move differently. They should each talk differently. Um, we don't all have the same vocabulary. So, whether the character is animated or whether the character is played by a real actor, um, they're still a fictional being who has a circumstance that is unique to them. And um, when you're writing, that character. That's what you need to keep in mind. I don't write David Hewlett playing Rodney McKay. I write Rodney McKay. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people in fandom have a difficult time divorcing the actor from the role, which is why you had people um, threatening um Benedict Cumberpatch's wife, or his fiance at the time, did they get married? Yeah, they got married. and I don't, didn't they? I don't get that at all. I don't understand how people could pro- could proclaim to be his fan and then turn around and threaten someone so obviously important to him. Yeah, they married in 2015. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I don't get it. But people, they, they just don't divorce the role from the actor. And that's a huge... Um, well, that's someone a mental else, illness. Some, some, <laughs> someone mentioned up, up above something about the fact about, you know, anime girls are unrealistic in canon, but... Um, that there's nothing fanfic stops them from writing them more sensibly. I don't think that that's actually um, unique to anime. Um, a, a lot of TV shows, movies, the women are not fleshed out or they're silly or whatever it is that is for that. They're love it's just, it's just, sex objects. It's, it's, yeah, it's the blight of the female character. So, yeah, fandom can do a better job than than whatever the source material is if they want to. If they choose not to, um, and particular maybe maybe some shows in anime have a particularly um, silly set of girls as the, it could be that reading that you might think that that's reflective of anime. Well, I think that's just a reflection of that particular show and not particularly necessarily of the of the media medium. Um, I think there's something I, I said earlier, some of the comments that me think something I said earlier, I d- didn't explain it well, which was a, we, we talked, we, we clarified a little bit the mimicry. But when you, when you take a bunch, a bunch of some of these concepts and you take a lot, like the way they write, like conceptually the way they write, the tropes they work with, um, the plot structures they work with, the characters they work with, the fandoms they work with, and then your voice comes out sounding exactly like them, and everybody immediately thinks, oh, you sound a lot like Kira. If that's the first thought, it does come across as mimicry. It doesn't mean that everybody who has written um, story with banter that I immediately, you know, we think that that is somebody who's trying to mimic somebody like Kira or Dark or whatever. That's not what I meant at all. But there are times when I've read stuff, and maybe these people are trying to come into their own voice, but, you know, it's time to come into the that's one of those things, like come into your own voice. Don't try to be, because the more you try to be someone like Kira, the less likely you're going to be to find your own voice, because it actually takes a lot of effort to mimic somebody. Sometimes I don't even know if it's on purpose. I think very young, inexperienced writers mimic out of a lack of... They really don't know what they're doing yet. And they're still learning their craft. They're still trying to find their voice. And they mimic those around them. Um, the same plot ideas, the same storylines. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, uh, that's... Oh, okay. I think I said this to you, and this is like the trope, the trope blender thing I was talking about, is if you're going to do it, do it well. Do it right. You know, put tropes together that make sense together. You can't just blend up stuff and stick tropes together that don't logically go together. You know, you can't have things that contradict each other. And you know, it's just, it's sort of like, I mean, you use a lot of different elements. You, I know you like the Lord. I, I love your whole Lord Harry thing. That became my whole, because I, the first one of the first. Um, Harry Potter stories that I really loved was Birth of the Serpent King. And so it's like um, Harry being a lord is like, that's like what I want to read is my favorite thing, you know. But there, you do the Lord Harry thing different in different stories. 
And you can't just take all of those tropes, all of those ideas, all those the concepts, the, all the different pieces of world building and heave them different pieces together because some of them don't fit. And, you know, I almost want to put something sometimes on my permission page. It's like, yes, you can use my concepts, but please use the ones that fit together. <laughs> <laughs> don't use no, them all at the same time. Can't use, um, you can't use random ones that don't fit together. I mean, if you can't see how they don't fit. Um, Dark I, I said that she wrote, like, Tamara, uh, Tamara Pierce from 12 to 15. At around 12 to 15, I was totally Nora Roberts. I totally believed it. I mimicked the fuck out of Nora Roberts. I didn't do it on purpose. I don't even think I realized I was doing it until... Um, I was in my late 20s, and I, I reread some of my old stuff, and I thought, oh, my God, why am I a knockoff for a Robert Nora Roberts? This is not what I meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I think when I was 12, 13, I think I totally sounded exactly like Laura London. I'm pretty sure that everything was coming out just <laughs> like that. It's terrible. At least we didn't have a fucking Hemingway stage. <clears throat> no, I never had. I was always bored by that crap. You know, like <laughs> six years old, I was like, no. No. But, you know, it's like I don't – it's one of those things It's like I don't mind – that's why I even have a permissions page. I don't mind if people use my ideas. I don't mind if people use even my original characters. I don't mind. I truly Lady don't. Lady Holder, apparently, um, Gina Yule, you know, honestly, Lady Holder, I can see that. I can totally see that, that, that Gina Yule thing in you. I can see her influence. I worked really hard to get Nora's head hopping out of my my head because she is a <laughs> she is the queen of head hopping and she don't give a shit. She will head hop to the end of time. Ask her, she don't care. I try to get rid of it. I don't, I'm not always successful, but I I do try. Um, But I do see, I do see Gina Yule's influence in you. That's really interesting that you pointed out to me. That's kind of fun. She's actually one of my favorite writers. Um, what I would like to have been influenced by as a young writer would have been Elizabeth Peters. But apparently I was not. <laughs> it was Nora Roberts. <laughs> so that's what I'm stuck with. I was reading too many bodice rippers when I was young. My mother yeah, needed to police my reading more. <laughs> yeah, that could explain all the filth I write today. Yeah. I regret nothing. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, it's it's not so much that I'm accusing somebody of copying me. That That's not what it is at all. It's, um, it's about um, saturation and... Um, about feeling your way and, and finding your voice, and sometimes it takes longer than than. And also, yeah, I do have a habit of insecting people's um, head cannon. I'm sorry. My bad. I'm not. <laughs> well, you said sometimes, sometimes you read something that it just fits, and the thing is, with there are some, and this is one of the things. There are some fan fiction writers that I have read who are massively uptight about their concepts. I mean, and the thing is, I would never steal somebody else's plot, but just concepts. They're, they're so uptight about their concepts. They'll leave, like, author notes and say, 
if I find anybody else using my concepts, I will hunt you down, have your story removed. I'm sorry, you cannot have somebody's stories removed from an archive for using a similar concept. So shut the fuck up. But this is you literally cannot. They could take your concept, write an original work, and publish it, and it still wouldn't be illegal because you cannot copyright an idea. Right. Because this is fan fiction. What kind of hypocrite are you? If they're not actually plagiarizing you, you need to shut up. Because I have I have seen stories out there that almost that, I mean we're talking almost plot point mimicry, but because the words aren't the same, I wouldn't accuse the, the person same. of plagiarism. I mean, and they, the thing is, it's a little insulting that they can't be bothered with credit. I mean, I find that to be a little bit bizarre that people are so uptight that they would deal with the me having to get a bunch of emails, people going, this person wrote a story that's just like yours, and getting feedback, people saying, you you wrote a story that's just like Jilly's. They could save all the trouble by just crediting me, but no, they have to pretend like that they didn't get their inspiration from me, but whatever. It's one of those things that's like, I don't care. I, it's flattering. But I, it's easier with an author like Kira who says, who who has a realistic and reasonable output, I mean, who has a good idea and has a headcanon that is really attractive. And she's got an attractive head, too, I'm sure. But she's got an mm-hmm. attractive headcanon. And um, she doesn't care if everybody, you know, uses that headcanon. She's like, yes, go forth, play with the headcanon, just, you know, make it be nice have make it make it be a sense and be nice to Matthew. I mean those are the rules, right? Make it make sense and be nice to Matthew. Um yeah, you have to be nice to Matthew Shepard. I mean, if you borrow him and you can, it's on my permissions page. I don't care. Um but please don't be the one responsible for me getting an email because you have abused Matthew Shepard in your story and I have to hear about it. Don't be that person. Yeah. So it's like, go forth, do your thing, but put some thought into your thing. Because you can't just say, I'm going to borrow this from here and this from here and this from here. Well, maybe those things were in separate stories for a reason. You know, maybe they were separate stories for a reason. So I have seen this where um, people put concepts together that it's like, you can use whatever you want, I don't care. But those don't go together. Those those sent and it's sort of sent, somebody somebody poked me about some Sentinel Guide world building. Can I use your world building from this? And they poked me about some world building from two different stories. I said, well, yeah, but those concepts don't go together. I mean, you can use it if you want, but they don't go together. I don't recommend it. And um, and so and it's something that hadn't occurred to them. But you know, it's like, but so when you've got an author who is reasonable and doesn't care if you go forward with their headcanon, it's easy to just get in and play in the sandbox. It's sort of like, you know, fan fiction squared or fan fiction, I don't know, it's like a superset or a subset of fan fiction. I don't know. <laughs> it's like but no, the I have never actually had anybody outright plagiarize me in fandom, although I did have some asshole posting um, episodes of Sentinels of Atlantis on um um AO3 I think they were using AO3 to make ebooks which was weird and a little convoluted but then you could just down um you could just download Calibre and do that on your computer without 
uploading everything on AO3, but they're gone now. That, that That's all gone. But no, I'm not accusing anybody of plagiarism in any single way, because it is, I, I have honestly never had that happen up to me in fandom. Beyond that asshole, like I said, posting Sentinels of Atlantis on um, um, AO3. Uh, it's, um, when I first noticed mimicking in fandom, it was not my work. It was um, Astrolot's work. Um, Astrolot has a very distinct voice. A very distinct voice. And I saw something <clears throat> on Wraithbait that had her rhythm and it had her 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 vocabulary and it was not her. And I was like, that is really interesting. <laughs> and it was like, wow. And it was like, I almost actually messaged Astolot to see if it was her. You were hiding? <laughs> well, I thought that'd be rude because if she's hiding, I don't need to out her. But it probably wasn't her. It was just a, one of her readers, um, maybe even, like I said, subconsciously mimicking her um, in their efforts to produce fan fiction. Because like I said, I really don't think it's on purpose. I think people get enamored with... Um, an idea or the way people um put words together or the banter or or whatever or the you know the sarcasm or the snark and they they really enjoy that so they want to put that in their own work and it's not so much a, I'm going to go copy this person as it is I want to do that too cuz it's really awesome um so I don't think any of it is really um with the exception for outright plagiarism which is ugly ugly fucking behavior but this mimicking thing that we see in fandom across the board and it's not just um me and it's not just jilly it's it's um it happens across you can see the best example you can see of it is to go over to fanfiction.net and look at the harry potter fandom from an objective like just put yourself in a really objective point of view (coughs) and you'd be Stunned at how many people outright mimic J.K. Rowling when they're writing Harry Potter. Everything they possibly can to sound just like her. And Which in fan fiction we might call being in character in a way. People might attribute maybe. that trying to be in character. Um, I don't know. But it's also weird. It's it's, it's very it weird. weird. But I am, um, I've been a writer for a very long time, so I am very much um, in a position of ownership over my voice. So I don't feel, um, I think mimicking, mimicry is, um, it boils down to a lack of confidence in your own voice. Um, and as you write, your confidence will increase. And I'm not at a point in my my evolution as a writer where I feel the need to to look or read like other writers. And that's a matter of maturity and, and you'll get that eventually. Um so if you sound like Nora Roberts today, next month you might sound like J D. Robin. <laughs> It'll be an improvement. Or maybe you just maybe that is maybe your voice happens to sound a lot like Nora Roberts. <laughs> maybe that's just in but, you. I mean, maybe that's the way you but speak. But there are no you know? two. Um, um, there are no two writers that are exactly the same, and and no writer will tell the same story the same way that you tell it. Yeah, we are I unique. think the only 
I think there was only time one time. If most time I see the mimicry and I assume it's like an unconscious thing, is they're trying to write something like you, or I think almost like they're trying to give it pay tribute to do it right, to do it the way you did it, like they're using a concept of yours and they're trying to do it right or something like that. I don't know. It's like trying to. But when I see somebody departing from the, the seasoned writer departing dramatically from their normal writing style to sound like you, it really makes me head tilt. I'm like, I don't understand what that's about. I don't understand what they're doing. <laughs> I don't get it either. I did find almost a – it was in a different fandom, not a fandom I normally read. But I'm thinking, this plot seems really, really, really familiar, and I'm not going to name it. So don't ask me. Um, this plot seems really familiar. Gosh, this this oh, this is my plot. Event for event, and I'm like, that is really interesting. And then sometimes the character reactions were a little off, but the actual plot points were spot on. And I'm like, huh. I wanted to actually email them and say, hey, why did you have your kids to do this? Because my character did this, and you're, you're supposed to be a little bit more interesting than mine. So what's your motivation behind that? <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't yeah, want them to know I, I was accusing them. I don't think, honestly, a lot of times I do think it's unconscious that you, that, that you pick up um, a structure that you like. Because um, I'm, you know, honestly not completely convinced that my standard story structure is my own because I've read hundreds hu- hundreds of books I've been reading well, since I was 12 years old so yeah, well, and you absorb all reader, that is anybody a reader truly claim to be uninfluenced by what they read I would hope not I can't claim to not be influenced by you or Lady Holder or any of the other authors I've read that I've really I mean when I write um I think when writing NCIS, sometimes I like look at my friend and I go, am I influenced by Lady Raw here? Because I would say she's probably the biggest influence over me in, um, um, in NCIS because she's got some of my favorite NCIS stories, so I kind of look at that. Um, but it is a little bit kind of like, I think that a lot of my, my style, I, I don't really see a lot of mimicry of like my voice very much, especially not dialogue, but I think most of my writing style is... Um, I think my rhythm of like of descriptive and action beats is more distinctly me than my dialogue, and um, I don't think I've run across at least nothing that I can pick out and go that really kind of that rhythm is more like me. But I have run across my plots like you like you in another fandom like point for point, and actually I I you handled it more graciously than I did because I was kind of pissed. <laughs> Like, especially since there was crying. Um, I think if there hadn't been crying, <laughs> I, I probably would have been okay with it. I don't know. It was just kind of strange because it was sort of like, I was like, well, this is this is my story. Plot for plot, moment for moment, different characters. Oh, tears. That's one way to make oh, it different. Fuck that. Fuck, that. That's fine. fuck it, fuck it. We all know I'm irrational <laughs> yeah. about... The crying, you know, so we just have to all get over it. <laughs> but no, you know, I think that yeah, I mean, I I do think a lot of it is. Um, but there's also a part of me sometimes when I encounter somebody using um, um, I 
sometimes I think to myself, so I had this idea, and I did it, and I executed it, and here's this person about eight months later doing the same thing, a very similar plot, and I think to myself, did she just think I didn't do it well? <laughs> she has to redo it so that it's better. And then I feel like an asshole because um, I'm I'm pretty sure people think that about ties that bind and dance, and that is the last thing from the truth. Um, I was so inspired by um, the General and Doctor Shepard um, when I read it that I that I wanted to write a BDSMAU, and that's where ties that bind came from. In no single way did I approach that with the idea that I could do it better. It, it never crossed my mind. Um, I read Coming Home after I started Ties That Bind, and Coming Home's a lot darker. I think if I'd have read Coming Home first, I might not have written Ties That Bind, because Coming Home is so dark. Oh, it was really difficult for me to read. I mean, so dark. Not bad, but dark and and very yeah. emotional. Um and I think if I'd have read it first, I probably would not have considered it so much fun that I, that I wanted to write my own. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so. Well, it's like sometimes I read something and I go, I just, I want to, I want to tell something in, the, in, in with these concepts. I would love to tell something in these concepts with, with the, with my unicorn. They told it with their unicorn, and, and I want to tell a similar story with my unicorn. So I really get that urge, and it's not like that they didn't tell the story work because they told the story so so well that I want to put the thing I love the most in it and tell it again and see how it would come out, you know. Um, And so I understand the urge. It's just it's one of those things I think that you kind of have to be, um, you know, it's like I read, read, read a story once where I, well, I started reading it, and they're talking about there's this really long author note um, where the author is explaining how they weren't inspired by who it seemed like they were inspired by. Um, <laughs> it's a really long, convoluted explanation about how where the – the plot mirrored such and such. It really wasn't the same. And, and you haven't even read it yet, and she's already set you up to think that it's exactly the same. Um, and then there's this claim of, like, I wasn't inspired by this, oh, by the way, because I haven't even read it. And it's like, yes, you did. <laughs> and yes, you, <laughs> you were. You totally read that. You totally read and that. You totally um, read I it. I have not read Zant's X-Files. I don't read X-Files. Um at all. I I tried to watch the show once, um, and I couldn't do it, and then I tried to watch it again when it came to um, Netflix, and I got I didn't even get to the first episode. So I never read um, Zant's BDSM in the X-Files, but I thought that she started the X-Files stuff after the Stargate. Was that not true? No, X-Files was where she started in fandom. Oh, really? Zanthi and I were in... in, in uh... In my head, she's always Xanthi. She has been for, I can't shake it. It may be Xanth, but she's been Xanthi in my head since, like, 1997. So, um, (laughs) 1998. So, it's really hard for me to shake that in my head. Um, But, yeah, we were in in X-Files fandom together, and and I think that's where she she started. But X-Files, you know, when I left X-Files fandom, um, I went to... um, 
um, everything I came every everything that came after was like fluffy bunnies and rays of sunshine. Okay, <laughs> so um, the lightest X Files fanfic is like you know it's still on the dark end of the spectrum. <laughs> I'm imagining aliens and, and body snatching and body horror and I just, um, but no, I never could. Um, so I, the, the only dance I've ever read is um, her Stargate stuff. And I read this really awesome NCIS fic where Gibbs is a vampire and it's filthy. Filthy's good. <laughs> and he, um, he makes, he makes Tony his <laughs> a graphic way in a cemetery. Um, I regret nothing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, this is in my head. I don't know how it happened. I don't actually know how it happened. Okay, but in my head, this has always been. This is it was like the stories we tell ourselves. But back then, when the when the X Files fandom was kind of imploding, and it was imploding because most of the seasoned authors, the the authors who had been around forever, were going off to write Harry Potter. And back then, I we're like we're like not and we're like in the first couple of books at that point. So to me, this is a book about little kids, and I did not get how we went from the dark cesspool of aliens taking on secret government conspiracies and aliens taking over the world and aliens being slipped into our bodies through our ears and our eyes. And we went to, I didn't get how we went from that to kids in a magic school, okay? So I didn't, you know, in my head. So we're losing a bunch of authors right, left, and center to Harry Potter, and Xanthi was kind of, she kind of was fizzling out. She wasn't writing as much X-Files. And I think she wrote more later, but at that time, I think she was kind of not writing as much. And I think she picked up a different fandom, like Stargate or NCIS. I don't know which one came next. Yeah, Josanne went to Harry Potter. Um, and a bunch of other people did, too. And, I, and eventually, now I get it, but back then I didn't. And so in my head, I felt like Xanthi, my head canon people, she did not, I'm not saying she did this, but in my head, it was her giving the bird to all the people who were going to Harry Potter. It was like, fuck you, I'm going to go to Stargate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're down to two minutes. Um, Please don't email me and ask me if I thought that you you copied my work. I don't think that. I think that we learn from one another, and um, that learning process um, causes, I don't know, uh, a form of mimicry that that is not at all um, a problem for me. Um, I have mimicked writers. We all do it. It's just how we learn. And, and, and how we grow and, and how we try new concepts and, and how we um, develop ourselves as writers. So it's not a problem for me. I don't want to read your work to make sure I haven't you haven't copied me enough to get credit. I don't. Just don't. Just don't. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't claim to own the soulmate trope. I don't know. Just, just don't calm your tits <laughs> on that subject <laughs> right there. And... <clears throat> But if you do take my plot point for point, you could give me credit. I, I won't get mad because <laughs> I don't. You'll actually save care. everybody. You'll save. The thing is, you'll save Kira and yourself a lot of communication <laughs> because people are going to write her and they're going to write you, and you might as well just nip that shit in the bud. <laughs> Unless you want to put like a really giant ass warning on the front of your fic, telling everybody that you were not remotely inspired by Kira. Um, in any 
um, similarities are merely a coincidence. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with that one, too, as long as it results in me not getting emails. Um, you guys have a great evening. We may or may not do a podcast tomorrow. You'll notice that my cough was a little bit better this evening. We're down, it was better. Down to 10 seconds. I know, right? Say goodnight. Good night. Good night.